A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 160 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, second airborne division of podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get the show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman. And with me, like the doubt over Django's Mandalorian heritage, the EU guru himself, the count of continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hello, everyone. Well, I guess the story we're looking at this time is another... A uh, tip in the direction of, yes, he was a Mandalorian, but it's Legends, so it really doesn't clear anything up for canon. True that. Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we look at Star Wars The Clone Wars, Defenders of the Lost Temple, the Comic Digest by Dark Horse Comics. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. And this is, by the way, also a quick chance for a quick reminder, folks. Don't forget, if you want to win... The original two-disc widescreen DVD releases of all three prequel films from their original releases in 2001, 2002, and 2005, plus that bonus, the Story of Star Wars DVD that was released as a pack-in bonus feature for those buying Revenge of the Sith in 2005 at Walmart stores. You can still enter to win that all the way up until March 15th, the Ides of March, by emailing us at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com putting DVD giveaway in the subject line, and putting your mailing address, in case you win, inside the body of the email. Good luck. All right, so context here, folks. Um, Again, Clone Wars is an unusual thing when it comes to the Star Wars saga. Up until the canon announcement back in April of 2014, there was just the one official continuity with, of course, the idea that there's different tiers to it, and Lucas looked at things one way versus the way that Lucasfilm was looking at it uh, with all the spin-off materials and such. So, at the time that this was produced, you had G-level canon, which was the films, T-level canon, which was the Clone Wars, C-level canon, which was the official continuity, the books, comics, novels, all that stuff meant to sort of fit together, and then you had the stuff that was S-canon, who knows, and N-canon that was definitely not part of it. All the Clone Wars spinoff materials that were produced at the time fell under the heading of C canon. Yes, it was about the Clone Wars characters. Yes, it was a spinoff of it, a tie-in to it. But that did not make it on par with the Clone Wars. It was C canon. The actual show was T and could override other stuff. Um, this was essentially the same 
level for these comics as for any of the other ones at the time. You had that very short-lived, regular-type comic series that wound up ending after Hero of the Confederacy. You had your uh, video games like Lightsaber Duels and Republic Heroes and whatnot. You had the novels like Gambit uh, and whatnot and Wild Space. You had Darth Maul Death Sentence. And then you had this Digest series in the same format, basically, as far as shape and size as Star Wars Adventures from Dark Horse, not the little kid's RPG thing, or the Clone Wars Adventure stuff that was based on the Tartakovsky series, where each of these was one story, priced a little bit higher at about eight bucks each time, but in sort of prestige format, digest form, based on the Clone Wars cartoon series this time. This is where you had Shipyards of Doom, if you remember that as one that was an idea, the whole, uh, let's hide them in carbonite and slip them across the droid lines, only to wind up then using that in the show later on. So, uh, it is a sea canon thing for what was the official continuity, what's now known as the Legends continuity. Now, because it's tied into the Clone Wars, there may be some questions, does this carry over into canon, or story group canon, Disney canon, whatever you want to call it, to make sure that people know that it's not just the ambiguous use of canon they've used many times before. This continuity that is being based around the films, the Clone Wars, Rebels, and now these new things being produced that are all meant to be all equal with no tears whatsoever, in theory. These do not carry over. Remember, what they brought over was the Clone Wars, the T-Canon stuff. This is all C-Canon. It's left behind just in Legends. As far as any of the spin-off materials, again, for Clone Wars, remember, the only thing that actually carries over so far that's not the Clone Wars television series is Darth Maul, Son of Dathomir. It also gets to be carried over because it was based on unproduced Clone Wars scripts. Eventually, the Dark Disciple novel will do the same thing. And as part of Clone Wars, they'll still be sitting in Legends also, but think of that just sort of as a duplication, where their biggest impact, the most important thing, is that they do fall under canon. So this is a C canon, Legends-tiered system story, not something that is part of the new canon. As for where you can get this right now, it is, of course, in print from Dark Horse Comics. They don't have the license anymore, but of course, this may be sitting around on shelves at comic shops and whatnot to be able to find, or you can find it very easily on places like eBay. As far as a digital version, there was a digital version available through the Dark Horse Comics app, but of course, they have lost the license now. They cannot sell new Star Wars comics through that app. Comixology, the really good comic app out there, but the one you got to buy stuff through the website and then... Uh, downloaded onto the app because of Amazon buying them out and everything that allows for subscriptions, blah, blah, blah. We talked about that in our formats episodes. That one does not yet have this story as of the time we're recording this, but they have started to add Star Wars comics. More expensive than they were originally, but they are selling them through Comixology, and they do all have the little Legends thing on the bottom. This particular issue just isn't one that's available through there yet. Honestly, as for the story, I actually like this one. It's an 11 Digest series, and this this and the Sith Hunters are the ones that, if you're going to pick up any of them, these are the two to pick up. Sith Hunters is the one that helps bridge the gap between the end of Season 4 and the beginning of Season 5 of The Clone Wars when it comes to whatever happened to Maul and Savage between the two seasons. Sadly, that didn't get carried over and probably should have been. In this case, what we've got is a story that sort of separate. I mean, it's not really a necessary story, 
but it gives us another adventure with Death Watch taking place between Season 4 and Season 5. So since the last time we saw them back when they were trying to bring in Lux Bonteri, back in A Friend in Need, before we see them come back in the Mall and Savage and Black Sun, etc., etc. arc in Season 5, it brings us a couple new Jedi characters, some interesting clone characters, raises some interesting questions about the clones and the nature of them in relation to the Force. And probably the coolest thing, something honestly that I didn't really think about when I first read it. I had to go back after reading it and having somebody mention it to me. I went back and read it again and altered some of the stuff, not even for the previous release, but the next release of the Star Wars Timeline Gold, saying, oh, this is stuff that ties back into something we've seen before, mm -hmm. which is why Mark wanted to cover this so badly, uh, even though I'm like, oh, God, it's a digest. But this is a story <laughs> that ties directly back into Knights of the Old Republic Vindication. So you get an author here, Justin Acklin, who is not only being pretty good as a storyteller in general in this digest, but also someone who seems to be really respecting the Clone Wars source material and EU source material and actually working it in. In general, you don't see that a lot with the Clone Wars tie-in materials. It's usually something that's almost standalone. It doesn't really connect to a whole lot of other stuff until you get to a source book or something. This one flat out does and does it well. So definitely one I would say to check out. We'll get into the details when we hit spoilers. Uh, Mark, what are your spoiler-free impressions? Well, okay, first off, I was not aware that there were only 11 of these digests. You would think, knowing that Dark Horse is losing the license, that this would have been something I would have paid more attention to. But I was like, well, the digests were always the thing I really didn't collect that much of. Uh, no, I'm looking and I've got five of them. I'm like, oh man, I'm halfway there. So I'm going to have to look for more. This one, uh, when I saw the stormtrooper with the lightsaber on it, I was immediately interested in what was going on with this story. You know, you see Pre Vizsla on the cover with his dark saber and the clones on his back with the green lightsaber and, and it's, you know, defenders of the lost temple. And I was like, Ooh, you know, what's this going to be about? Uh, so there was that angle of it. So now I'm going to be hunting down these other ones. Because, you know, I want this to have a complete set. And knowing there's only 11 of them, it's like, oh, well, that, that won't be that hard. And it brings back that element of the old looking for the old, like, galaxies of fear and stuff, which I finally managed to get all of those thanks to a fellow Beyonder. Uh, but this story was a fun little ride. And it was one of those, two that when I read it the first time, I did not have KOTOR on my mind. And it totally slipped past me. And then I'd seen a, a post on Facebook about one of the pictures and asked a question about that, and I looked back, and holy crud, you know, I was like, whoa, it is, it's it's Dre too, oh my goodness, there's a connection here, you know, the connection was really cool, it didn't have to actually be something that was there for the story, it could have been any lost Sith relic, but at the same time, having it be that one, it, it was it was very inoffensive to continuity. You know, it was able to work with it. It, it didn't mess up anything. There was nothing like like with how uh, Mortis monoliths get used later in Legends and stuff like that. We're like, oh, man, now we have to work this with. I mean, it's one of those where, you know, even from the perspective of a Legends fan who does not want to acknowledge Clone Wars stuff, you know, I mean, this it doesn't mess with much of what's going on with legends. It was a really cool ride in that regard. Uh, but seeing new stuff with Canon, there were some interesting things when I was reading it again last night for this, which applies to what is going on in Canon and how it was interesting that they had some aspects of that 
in this and that mainly being the aspect of having a master and a padawan both using the force to enter the temple it, it's nothing like major in this but i thought it was interesting that that was one of the takes that, that was required for these two to get inside i mean it wasn't like how it was presented in rebels but it was like oh wow was that like one of those notes that lucas had where, where you know somewhere amongst the writers and stuff they knew that you know getting into the temples required like a great amount of force you know it wasn't just one master able to usually do it all the time sometimes they needed some backup so there were a lot of little things throughout this that had me stopping and questioning uh you know i mentioned Django fett there's there's references to him being a mandalore not just by clone troopers but also death watch uh and so i was like oh hey what about that you know little things like this all the way through this they had me stop and questioning there's a clone that's talking about the force and thinking he can feel it and, and by the end of the comic I, I have some serious questions you know and and I don't know. It was a fun little ride in that regard, and I kept disregarding these comics all the way around. And then when I get a comic like this and I'm going through it, I'm like, man, I really should have been paying more attention, especially now that we're in 2015, and I can't just call up Jeff down at Iguana Comics and be like, hey, dude, give me these really quick. Now I've got to hope he's got them sitting somewhere or he knows someone else that has them. Otherwise, I'm going to have to go and look for these when I go to other stores and other towns, go looking at other comic shops as I'm hitting I-5. I'm like, oh, wait, there's a comic store. i got to stop here and just check their, their backlogged stuff because the stuff is still out there. And I'm sure a lot of these comic owners were smart and bought a lot. I know Jeff bulked up on quite a bit of stuff, uh, but Marvel's dumping their Dark Horse lines and stuff. So it's coming down the pike now. There's that question of how available is it going to be? So, you know, I... I really regret not thinking more about that going into 2015. I really thought I'd be okay with that. But then after grabbing this again and going through it, I'm like, man, I kind of botched that one. Well, don't kick yourself too hard about it. There's 11 digests in this series, and there's maybe three of them that are really that worthwhile. You have Sith Hunters, which is the one that bridges, like I mentioned. There's this one. You've got one called Strange Allies that's actually a continuation of the characters from the Clone Wars Secret Missions series, that book series by Ryder. I got Wendell. that one. Yeah. Um, beyond that, they're usually kind of goofy, and they don't do usually what this one does. You look at the back of this book, this story takes place between Season 4 and Season 5 of the television series The Clone Wars. You open it up, same thing on uh, the page between the credits and the beginning of the story. This story takes place sometime between Seasons 4 and 5 of the Clone Wars, worded slightly differently, but at least they're telling us. Most of these are like virtually every other Clone Wars comic out there, especially the ones in things like the Clone Wars magazine. How do you know when it takes place? You don't. You make a guess because of what they're wearing, and that's all you got. Is it the old character models or the new ones? Even though, of course, in a comic, they can wear something different without making a new character model. You'd think they'd change it up a little bit more, and they sometimes do to their credit, to a degree. Um, the digests, and eventually we'll probably do an episode that kind of covers them in general, but the digest series comics are usually pretty dull, or dull is not the right word for it, um, unnecessary. Lackluster? Kind of. Like, when I'm looking at a Star Wars story, when it comes to Le Legends continuity at least, I want something that matters. We've talked about this before, that we want either a really, really good story that really knocks it out of the park as far as characterization, where not really tying into other stuff doesn't matter, like, say, Honor Among Thieves. Or we want a story that matters in some grand scheme of things, that connects to something else. Um, even if it's as lame as what they did with Buyer's Market, 
Uh, or what they did with Rebel Heist, where it was, hey, let's tie it into this thing and how the Rebels got it, even though we really didn't need to know, or how Lando got the ad ad, et cetera, et cetera. Um, at least there's that attempt that's there, but we'd like to have something somewhat meaningful, because there's a lot of Star Wars stories out there. Really, you kind of got to justify the price tag and why someone, especially someone who doesn't own everything yet, is going to buy your thing instead of this other thing. And usually these digests, for as high a price tag as they are, really don't have anything to justify actually purchasing them. They're throwaway stories. They have no definite time frame. They tie into nothing. They're referenced in nothing, usually not even each other. And they're series that just sort of feel like an afterthought, a cash-in to everything else. Star Wars Adventures ties into nothing. It's got some cool stuff like Luke Skywalker and the Treasure of the Dragon Snakes, but for the most part, Ties into nothing, kind of dull, usually with supporting casts we never see again and have never seen before. Um, the only thing, probably, more than the Clone Wars Digest series that leaves me kind of shaking my head as far as the Digests is Clone Wars Adventures, the ones based on the Tartakovsky series. Because that was even yeah. worse, because not only was it kind of random time periods, random characters, throwaway adventures, they tried to cram three different stories into these books. At least the Clone Wars Digest based on the cartoon series and Star Wars Adventures had one story per book, so they could have a little more depth to it, although sometimes they feel kind of like they're dragging on forever. Clone Wars Adventures, the stories were so short, they never had a chance to matter, really, at all. Uh, Dark mm -hmm. Horse did not effectively use this format, I'd say, 90% of the time. When they did it well, like this... Sith Hunters, and to a degree, Strange Allies, it works quite well. But that's the exception rather than the rule. If you're hearing this and saying, wow, that sounds great, I need to go out and pick up that entire series, uh, you might want to slam the brakes on, maybe check out a couple before you decide to jump into the whole thing. Because chances are, out of the, the couple that you buy, unless it's the ones that I mentioned, at least one of them is going to wind up being one of the turds, or one of the unrelated kind of pointless throwaway ones for eight bucks. And that'll at least give you a sense of what you're dealing with for most of these. Well, good point, because I mean, these are 11 books, but they aren't treated like a series. You know, I'm looking at them and none of them have a number on the side or anything like that. I've got Strange Allies, Sith Hunters, Wind Raiders of Talaran, In Service of the Republic, and this one, uh, Defenders of the Lost Temple. I mean, so it sounds like I've got mostly winners here. So I'm kind of like, yeah, you've Sweet. got <laughs> the ones that there are of this for what it's worth. You got Shipyards of Doom, which probably isn't even Legends continuity anymore because of all the issues surrounding the whole Carbonite thing and and uh, Ahsoka disobeying and all of that that's basically reused in, I believe it was a Citadel arc. Um, so Shipyards of Doom's probably not even Legends continuity anymore. You've got Crash Course, which is basically a pod racing thing, uh, Wind Raiders of Talaran, The Colossus of Destiny, which is a Mace Windu story, The Deadly Hands of Sean Ju is an Aayla Sakura story, uh, the Star Crusher Trap, Strange Allies, that's the one that ties into the secret missions. The Enemy Within, the Sith Hunters, that's the one that bridges the seasons. Defenders of the Lost Temple kind of bridges the seasons, or at least is between them. And then the Smuggler's Code, which is just kind of a lame Obi-Wan Kenobi working with a smuggler who keeps double-crossing him. Oh, big surprise kind mm -hmm. of story. So, I, again, it's... I don't even want to say it's hit or miss, because hit or miss almost makes it sound like it's 50-50. It's definitely not. Yeah. 50-50. Most of these you could skip and never care unless you're a completionist. But well, and, the ones that are good are quite good. 
Well, for disclosure, I mean, I these were the last things I collected. I've got all the other comics. Got some of them twice before I got these. I mean, that was literally one of the last things I got. And then, I mean, you know, you mentioned them. So, I mean, I've got Clone Wars Adventures Volume 1. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, it had a very serialized feel to it. I didn't really care for it that much. I do have Star Wars Adventures. Uh, I've got the Luke Skywalker and the Treasure of the Dragon Snake that you mentioned, as well as Boba Fett and the Ship of Doom. What I find interesting between these three as, as series, uh, if we call them that, and I, I say loosely, uh, the Adventures ones, there's no moniker here. I have no idea you know, how many books are in that one as well. But the Clone Wars Adventures one, it does say volume one on it. And I'm assuming that each one of these books was a different volume. So at least with that one, you had a sense that it was a series. So I, I don't know. For me, I think like knowing when there's a number on the books, I, there's a part of me, the collectionist in me, that's like, I got to get all of them. But these ones were so, especially the Clone Wars Adventures, were so bad. I'm just like, I really don't care. Uh, but knowing that these other ones don't have an actual number to them, I, I feel better knowing that I've got a majority of the good ones and I'm not really going to be as worried as I was five minutes ago. I mean, five minutes ago, I was really starting to sweat it. Hearing that there was only 11, I was like, oh, i got to get them all. But you're right. I mean, the bottom line with these digests were, and that's the reason why I was they were the last thing I collected, was overall they were never as on par as the comics and the regular books were. They were just always a little more lackluster, a little less caring uh, when it comes to the way they were drawn. Uh, this one isn't so bad. I actually I enjoy it for, for the most part. It is a really fun ride. So it is nice to have some gems in there, but, but keep in mind these gems aren't diamonds. Right, and for what it's worth, the uh, Star Wars Adventures series has six in it, and the Clone Wars Adventures series, based on the Tartakovsky series, has ten volumes in it. So, of all the Digest series, this is the one that lasted the longest in terms of number of installments. We've analyzed their attacks, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. So we're between seasons four and five of The Clone Wars, which means we're probably within that last year or so prior to Revenge of the Sith. And we have basically a situation where some Jedi are hunting down an artifact. Now I'm going to grab the summary here from the Star Wars timeline goal, because there's a lot of bits and pieces going here, and this is kind of a fast-paced story. I don't want to wind up saying this in such a way that gets particularly confusing, because probably not a lot of our listenership has picked up this particular comic relative to some of the other stuff we've talked about. So we have a Republic team consisting of Jedi Master Bink Utrilla and her Padawan Renax Omani, along with clone troopers that include Lieutenant Law, their leader, Horns, who's fascinated with the Mandalorian Death Watch, Cannon, and Glitch, who believes himself different and potentially Force-sensitive, Searches Drey 2, a moon in the Outer Rim that seems at one time to have been tied into the estate of Barrison, Krinda, and Lucian Drey for a lost Jedi temple that should contain the Gauntlet of Kresh the Younger, an ancient Sith artifact that was used by Hazen millennia ago before he was stopped by Zane Carrick. That's in Knights of the Old Republic Vindication. The Gauntlet can render its wearer invulnerable, making it too dangerous to let possibly fall into Separatist hands. One wonders why the Jedi would have taken it from Coruscant after Hazen's defeat and put it into this temple in a sort of obvious altar-like spot, but that's neither here nor there, I suppose. Well, maybe it is here or there, because didn't at the end of that KOTOR one, Dre himself had it, and that was how he escaped unhurt, 
And then he disappeared and started that new temple. I mean, that was what I was wondering was Dre to that moon that we saw him on at the end of the comic. That would make sense, especially given the fact that wasn't he blind at the end of the comic? Yeah. He so he's not exactly he gonna had be the... able to do a whole lot here as far as, you know, he couldn't necessarily be the one to carve all this stuff because the building itself that we see in this, uh, in fact, the thing that I guess alerted you to the fact that this was a tie-in that I didn't even think about, at one point they find a carving on the wall that is basically Hazen wearing the gauntlet standing off with Lucien Dre with his lightsaber. Oddly enough, Zane Carrick is completely left out of the carvings and everything, but somebody had to do that. So unless he had people with mm-hmm. them, it seems odd that he could have done that and brought it here. But you know, some question: you know, how would it have gotten here? And all these traps get set up. Was this already set up for something else? He happened to place that particular artifact there. Uh, the, the origin of how it gets from where we last saw it to here, and how this temple gets set up, is kind of left up to the reader's imagination. Never actually yeah. explained or anything. Yeah, I totally assume Dre 2 is the planet we see Dre standing on. He's like in a grain field. He's got a staff, a little bandage around his eyes, and there are other Jedi around him. And it was talking about how he's forming a new enclave, a new uh, redoubt for the Jedi when they'll be needed again later. Although it was later assumed that these Jedi were the ones that came back uh, during all the events later, what I believe in the Old Republic and stuff, when the Jedi Order were being refilled again after the first attack with Revan, that kind of stuff. But I always had that a vision that that Dre took it with him, that it was it was the reason why he had definitely survived the blast on Coruscant. So I just assumed he took it with him into hiding or something like that. And this temple was created by that group. And they were, you know, the, the fact that Zane wasn't on anything. But you see, there's like a couple different statues of Dre. There's that one that you mentioned and stuff like that. I, it felt like it was definitely, again, his ego, even though all that stuff went on, there was an aspect of his ego through the followers that, you know, they they reviled him above all, kind of the way the shadows were treating him and, and the covenant. So they're searching for the artifact and they're at the doors of the temple itself. You know, what? the one thing that that's that's the one aspect that reminded me of Rebels, because uh, uh, the master, she's like, Renix, can you assist me with the doors? Oh, yes, of course, Master. And they both walk up and together they push on it and the doors opened. And I, it struck me as interesting that even in Legends, we had aspects to get into these Jedi temples where it would require more than one Force user to get in. It was it was not something I would have ever thought about before. But recently with Rebels in the Path of the Jedi episode, they had very similar to that regard where Kanan and Ezra both needed to work together to open the temple. And the temple was a totally different concept from what I had remembered from Legends. I mean, me and Nathan were talking about, you know, we're used to a Praxium and things like that. And this one had more of a religious feel to it. Uh, There's elements of that later here, too, where it's like they got to stab into the right hole or the whole temple collapses on itself, which brings me to that aspect of Dre. You know, it's like, okay, he's booby-trapped the heck out of it. It has a very Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom feel to it. I'd say it feels like that. It feels also to a degree like something you would see in a video game, big time. In terms of, you know, I must mm-hmm. get to this, here's the creature coming out, I must unlock this, solve this puzzle to get to it. Even with the point where it's sort of a twist ending, like a lot of times you'll see in video games now after credits, the way that movies sometimes do it, like the Marvel ones. So they use the Force, they get inside... Uh, we get a chance to see some banter between the clones and whatnot. Um, but let's pick up here with how they actually get to the next stage uh, of finding it. Glitch accidentally activates a guardian droid in the form of a stone version of ancient Jedi Lucian Dre. 
But the Jedi managed to deactivate. It's this huge sort of, again, kind of an Indiana Jones type or video game type creature, uh, or not even creature, like this this mechanical construction, kind of like those guardians that we see Mace Windu and Jar Jar Binks go up against, uh, but somewhat more agile. And it's given the clones a lot of trouble. They're having trouble damaging it in any way, but the Jedi figure out, aha, you know, you need to be able to use the Force to do this, based on a comment from uh, one of the clones. It's like, okay, so there's sort of like this... It almost looks like a... What do they call it? It's a sand dial, I guess is what they call it. Yeah. Um, one of those little timekeeper things inside its chest that's turned one way and lit up, and they use the Force to turn that dial, essentially, and when it's in the right position, the whole thing shuts down. So, get very video game feeling... But I do think it's kind of cool that the statue itself was in the form of Lucian, which again suggests that either this is something that he had made, or maybe this was a place that his family owned, this moon that perhaps they owned, and it was something he had set up for the Jedi Covenant at some point. And once the Covenant itself falls, he just uses it and happens to put this particular artifact here. I, I lean more, much more towards it being an old Jedi Covenant thing that he then used for his own purposes, then somehow he came here and created all this stuff because he doesn't seem like quite as arrogant of a guy at the end of Vindication as he was initially. Yeah, there's a definite mystery there. And you're right, that, that was a cool scene where they discovered what it was. You know, uh, Glitch, he's like, trying to use the Force, he's holding his hand up. And they're like, why aren't you using your blaster? And then the Jedi Master, she's like, think, Renix, this droid was designed by Jedi. As a guardian for this temple, what's the one thing only a Jedi could do that a Sith would never think to? Of course. And so that's when they do it. But see, that explanation doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, it kind of does, kind of doesn't. What's the only thing a Jedi could do but a Sith would never think to do. Of course, use the Force, but not to attack. I guess that's sort of what the idea that the Sith would probably see the situation and try to go in with brute force, no pun intended, but that does seem a little bit hinky. Surely the Sith would use the Force, or think to use the Force, in some way other than just attacking. The Sith weren't stupid. They were master schemers. So that seemed like kind of a goofy way... Uh, very much like the other comics in this series, rather than, say, what we might see with the Clone Wars television series, to say, okay, here's how we're going to solve this problem. Then again, the last time we saw something like this in the Clone Wars cartoon series was Season 6 with Jar Jar, and that all got deactivated basically by accident. So maybe I'm overthinking it. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, but but what Glitch does to activate this, at that scene, it was a really good moment uh, between the clones. And it was one of those first moments for me that brought up the whole Jango Fett thing. Uh, you know, Law is asking Horns, he's all, Horns, I gotta ask you, what's the story with your helmet? And he's all this, and he's pointing at it, and it's the Death Watch logo that Pre Vizsla wears. And he's all, uh, it's the symbol of the Mandalorian Death Watch. I know that. But Death Watch are maniacs. Why have this symbol on your helmet? And then this next panel, it, it strikes me as odd, but at the same time, it's also probably one of the main reasons why I don't care for the digests themselves. In this panel... Horns has got this pose where he's got his blaster, his right hand up across his arm on the left hand side and his other hand's doing like a fist pump pull in and he's got this like I'm about to spring out pose. But it's got the rays of light that you see with a lot of Japanese anime while he's yelling this. Death Watch are the most dangerous Mandalorian warriors in the galaxy and I'm one of the deadliest clones of a great Mandalorian warrior. And then of course it goes back the normal scene he goes why else would they have sent me on this key mission cannon and then he's like i hate to break it to you but this mission is a dead end but that 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 scene it's like i get what they doing with that 
I get what they're doing with that. They're really stressing the fact that he sees himself as this Mandalorian warrior. But it was interesting, too, that he sees Jango Fett also as a Mandalorian warrior. And this isn't the first time we're going to get this referenced as we go forward. But it was also a really interesting point because after that glitch, he's talking about, you know, I, I think I can feel the entrance in the forest, guys. There's your crack squad. I heard he barely mustered, you know, I mean, and, and it builds up the fact that the clones themselves see glitch as a failure because later in the end of the comic, they'll mention that. And I was kind of like, well, he didn't seem like a terrible stormtrooper. They gave him a lot of crap, but he didn't seem like a terrible stormtrooper. Yes, there was one moment where he wasn't using his blaster when the droid was going on, but that also allowed the Jedi to figure out a way to get past the droid. So I don't know. He wasn't too terrible. They follow glitch's accidental discovery of the droid activation plate to a secret entrance on a lower level. Glitch then stumbles upon, again, the room where the gauntlet is actually stored. But when they try to get at it, it's protected by nearly invulnerable sorrels, these creatures that are transformed over the millennia by the gauntlet's power into being basically invulnerable. What you've got is sort of like, it almost looks like a, a column or a tree that's really weird looking. And then it starts to unravel, and it turns out that it's not really a column, it's these sorrels all built up on top of each other. And in the core of that, while they're fighting these creatures, they realize that as it unraveled, inside it is the little altar that has the gauntlet on it. I found that to be a pretty cool way to have it hidden, but at the same time it begs the question, you know, if you're really trying to hide this so no one else is going to use it, why would you put it there? You know, if I've got something you know, incredibly destructive, I don't want anybody to find, I'm going to bury it in the middle of a freaking desert and not make a map of where it was. Or I'm going to launch it into a sun. Or perhaps I'll take something that's not the real gauntlet and put it on the altar and take this fake one and stick it inside the water tank of a toilet and then weld that thing shut and just say, oh, well, you know, I'm going to put an out-of-order sign on the bathroom door or something. <laughs> Putting it there as if it's that, that the, uh, the little... Uh, statuette or whatever that Indiana Jones is trying to get at the beginning of the Raiders of the Lost Ark is like saying, hey, look, guys, this is important. This is awesome. We're honoring this, even though it's something that's supposed to not be able to be used, unless Lucian somehow saw it as, you know, a part of his survival and therefore he wanted to put it on display. But then why put all these traps and stuff around it? It would have made much more sense to do like with the, uh, the Sanctum of the Exalted that we saw back in the Exalted storyline and just have this crammed somewhere into a super secret you know, high security facility, but not have it just sitting out there in the open. I know it's not quite in the open because the creatures were around it, but still, did he know that when the creatures were put around it, that if you gave them enough time around it, they would somehow become invulnerable without actually having to wear it or not? It just, it seems like a bizarre setup. This whole thing, this whole temple, as cool as it is, it's very video game-like, but the logic of the whole thing doesn't really flow very well. Well, there's a couple things there. One, I didn't get the feeling that those bugs were there originally. Um, so I, I had the feeling that Dre himself had hit it there, put it away there. And, and actually, you know, if you mentioned if it was a covenant resource that he is retooling in this regard, uh, I, I felt like there was this, this aspect of his showmanship still within him, you know, because you see this the, the one statue where he's lifting it up, you know. Whether it be he that, that, that created it or if it was people that worshipped, you know, the things that he was trying to do, whatever the reasoning behind that, I felt like he had put it there as a display of, you know, I was able to stop this from happening. You know, it was a, tr it was a monument to that. 
Uh, but he put the booby traps because it was so dangerous. Because to get to this point, they had to do that lightsaber wall where if you if you did it wrong, the entire temple is going to crash. So that's the last, you know, oh, oh crap, this is all going to fall apart. I had a feeling that these bugs, and, and I love the, the way that it looked like a big column or tree, like you said, with glowing lights and stuff until uh, Law touches one of them. And then he's like, oh my god, the column's moving. These things are alive. I had this feeling that the dark power of the gauntlet drew these things to it. And they were kind of like getting warmth off the darkness kind of thing. That was I don't know. That was just what came to my mind. And that over the years, that allowed them to become invulnerable. But there is that angle, like you said, did he know that that would do that? And if so, I mean, that that too has an interesting twist. But I was thinking about that. I'm like, these things, just because they're now invulnerable because of being around that for so long, would be a vicious kind of creature to run into to at a later date, you know? Uh, but yeah, I mean, I totally, I just saw them as clustering around the evil, not it being more deliberate. Though if it was more deliberate, it is kind of a way to really hide it well because when they first came in, they didn't even think to look there. It was really by chance that Law touched one of them. Yeah, and I guess I sort of skipped over how they get actually into the room. It's It turns out that the Padawan conveniently has two lightsabers, very much like Ahsoka. Uh, one blue, one green, whereas the Master has one that's blue. And she takes one of them and stabs it into one of the holes, several Swiss cheese-like holes in the wall, and only one can be sensed as the one that's not going to bring the whole place down on her head. It's the one that's going to actually allow it to enter. It's like crossing the seal in Last Crusade. You cross the seal with the uh, the Holy Grail, it's going to bring the whole thing down, but if you use it where it's supposed to be used, you're good to go. So it's another of those traps, uh, very penitent men shall pass uh, sort of, of, of thing here. Um, you mentioned again the idea that maybe he took this and it was like a symbol of what he's overcome as sort of that arrogance and showmanship there. It's a good thing we don't see this elsewhere, this reminds me of the idea of, let's say, the, you know, the Rebels destroy the Death Star and find out that in the remnants of the Death Star, the super laser is entirely still intact. We'll just take it and stick it in a warehouse somewhere, you know, just as a sign of what we overcome. Don't worry about the <laughs> fact that somebody could take it and build another Death Star with it or start blowing stuff up with it all the time. It's a, it's a symbol of our victory. No. Uh, you know, we do not wind up, you know, defeating Ebola and then have little, you know, vials of Ebola sitting in museums saying, hey, everybody, come see what we defeated. Because, you know, there's a danger that somebody <laughs> could get to it and start getting sick. I know we keep it at the CDC in samples to be able to fight it, but you don't put it on freaking display. Anyway. All right. So, upon touching the gauntlet, uh, Utrilla, again, that is the master, the Twi'lek, is shocked by its dark side power. And I guess I should sort of comment here on the look of this. This is where the artwork really, to me, became kind of striking. In this series, most of the time, the artwork is very hit or miss. A lot of times, they just try to emulate what we see in the cartoon series, and that's it. This one takes, as Mark was saying, sort of like a, a more manga or anime style to it, to a degree, and I think it works well. You know, the little marks over the head and stuff like that, the, uh, the weird shining light behind horns whenever he was making his comment about the Death Watch. In terms of kind facial like expressions and such, it works very well. Uh, I think, and this is one of those times when we see it because she touches it, is shocked by its dark side power, and plans change. They decide they're going to simply guard it until they can contact the Jedi Council to determine what to do about it. But Utrilla then has to deal with being shaken by her contact with the gauntlet. She looks very haunted at this point. She even decides not to take the first watch. She's going to try to get some rest because of how this is affecting her. And while she does that, Renax, that's the Padawan, who looks, again, probably the most 
Japanese style of any of these in terms of the style of the artwork. And Glitch, the possibly Force-sensitive clone, discuss whether he just might feel the Force, which is supposedly in all living things, even clones, along with the question of whether everyone's path is really determined by how they're born. Because the Padawan is actually talking about how she really didn't get a choice. She became a Jedi because... She was just sort of born into it. She was born. They discovered she was Force-sensitive. They brought her in. Nobody asked her if she wanted to do it. Nobody certainly asked her if she wanted to be in the middle of a war at some point. That choice was made for her. And here are the clones where essentially they are bred for war. They don't have a choice either, um, which makes for an interesting dynamic here. I would say that Glitch and this Padawan, but especially Glitch, raised some really interesting questions within the span of this comic. I mean, if Glitch mm -hmm. can sense the Force, then it's getting back to this whole idea that the Force is more metaphysical, it's more spiritual, it's more that energy field that surrounds us and penetrates us and binds the galaxy together, rather than being all about midichlorians. I mean, we know that there's this connection with them, we got that somewhat with Season 6 and the Yoda arc and how the midichlorians, you know, are part of how it, we connect to the living Force and blah, blah, blah. But here we have people who are genetically identical. You can make the argument, well, you can't make a Force-sensitive clone. It's not possible. Well, you got Joris Sebaoth. Yeah, but they go mad. What about X1 and X2 from the uh, was it Elite Squadron video games? They were clones of Jedi Master Fallon Gray, Rom Kota's former Padawan. They didn't go nuts, albeit one became evil and one was good, but they didn't go nuts. So the idea of Force-sensitive clones is, you know, it, it makes sense, but here, and of course there's a Starkiller clone from the Force Unleashed too. both of them, good and bad, because there's a bad one that shows up in the bad ending and all, but mm -hmm. you look at this, and here is an individual, Glitch, who is supposedly genetically identical to all of his clone brothers, and except for the tweaks to make them less uh, rebellious, to make them easier to control to make them age faster, they're supposed to be genetically almost identical to both Jango Fett and his unaltered clone, Boba Fett. And yet, here's one that appears to be Force-sensitive, whereas the others, we've never gotten a hint of that. And I like that because it's a subtle way of kind of saying it's not about biology. Midichlorians aside, this is not a biological thing. It is spiritual, as it was when talking about it in the original trilogy era and all the way up to the introduction of, of uh, midichlorians, rather than being something that has necessarily an obvious biological component. Just because Luke and Leia are twins, they're not identical twins, they can both feel the Force, there is that sense of, well, there must be a genetic thing because it flows through the family. But it can't be just genetic, it can't be just biological, otherwise this scenario couldn't exist. It's a nice way of leaning it back in the spiritual direction. Well, do you remember, I think it was the approaching storm, uh, Kit Fisto was teaching a group of clones, I believe one of them was Django Tat, uh, an exercise that allowed them to open themselves up to the force. And he was telling them, you know, you just keep doing this and eventually you'll start to feel something. You know, it'll, it'll eventually become something more. You'll, you'll start to have an awareness. I, I think it was in the approaching storm, but it was with, it was Kit Fisto and a group of the clones and he was teaching them like Terrace Caius maneuvers or something like that and it was it was all about like a zen aspect of it but it was opening them up to something and and it struck me a lot that that was very similar to this 
No, it wasn't Cloak of Deception. It was the Cetus Deception. Cestus. Cestus. The Cestus Deception. That's the one with Kit Fisto and the Django Tat clone. Another thing, though, that, that I thought was very cool that I only picked up just recently is there was a light droid going through the temple with them the whole way to explain why there's so much light everywhere. And it's like, you know, sometimes it's just this glowing little orb kind of thing. And then other times you look at it, and it's got a bunch of little orbs around it and it's putting out a lot of light. I thought it was kind of cool because I'm like, oh, okay, that explains where all the light's coming from. But there's also a really cool moment where it really shades. And I think this is one of the scenes you were talking about, about the master, where, uh, you know, the law goes, what's the plan, General? How do we get the gauntlet out of here? We don't. I touched it and I was overwhelmed by the dark side powers. It's too dangerous for us to move. For any of us, anyway. And the look on her and the way that the light's coming around her and stuff is really cool. It, it casts a really purple glow to her. But her in the next, like, three or four panels, like, you could see the absolute dread that's come over her. And one right before uh, the Padawan goes outside, the master is hunched up with her knees up towards her chest with her hands coming up over her knees with one of her leku. And she's, like, rubbing it, like, trying to, to comfort herself. And, you know, that when we get towards the end of the comic, you know, the, the visceral change for her when she touched it, how it was immediate, uh, you know, and how she talks about how consuming the dark side power was. And the fact, like you said, you know, you had all those bugs on it that were just kind of like touching the outside of it. Not all of them were really on it. And yet it made them all, you know, become invincible. What kind of effect is that going to have on the people that come in contact with it? So Renax and Glitch have been talking about whether he might feel the force. They've been talking about whether their path is determined, how they were born, etc., etc., but they're interrupted by the arrival of Death Watch, led by Pre Vizsla himself and Night Owl Commander Bo-Katan, who, of course, we later learn is the sister of Satine Cries. And as they zip in, at this great moment where they're zipping in on their jetpacks, and Vizsla's pointing both of his blasters and says, Good evening! Time to die! I find that kind of you know, goofy and over the top, but it very much is something you could hear the character saying in the Clone Wars, the way that he talks. And I was reminded yes. of Magneto from the X-Men game. X-Men, <laughs> welcome to die. So uh, to me, it was kind of a, a laughing moment there. Turns out, Death Watch was looking for the Gauntlet too, and when they saw the Republic team on the moon, they simply waited for them to lead Death Watch right to it. After briefly being captured and being able to escape from the ropes that bind them, or the cord that binds them, Glitch tries to warn the others while Renax holds off the invaders on her own. But Glitch is injured by an explosive, a wrist rocket from a Mandalorian, and Vizsla enters the room where everyone else is camped with Renax as a hostage. When Vizsla recognizes that Horns has a Death Watch symbol on his helmet, he basically berates the guy, you know, oh... You know, you fancy yourself a member of Death Watch, do you? And basically says, yeah, you can join us. Just kill Master Utrilla. And he refuses, leading to him to almost take a blaster shot to the forehead before Glitch re-enters the scene. I thought that was an interesting moment of sort of, you know, a reality check for Horns. And in a, to an extent, you got to wonder if it's sort of a reality check for fandom, because... There's so many fans out there that are like, Death Watch is so cool. You know, Boba Fett is so cool because he has the armor. Well, why is he cool? He's so cool. He's like the best character in the classic trilogy. What does he do? Not a whole lot. Then how is he the best character in the trilogy? Um, <laughs> and here it's basically sort of a, yeah, they may look cool, but reality check, here's what they really are and here's what they really do. And here it's the same thing for, for Horns. You know, he wants to show he's awesome 
Oddly enough, because he's a clone of Django, who in the Legends continuity hated Death Watch, albeit being a true Mandalorian breaking off from the new Mandalorians as well, and Death Watch breaking off from them. But you have sort of this sense of, he's, he doesn't see a difference between Django and the Death Watch, but when he sees what Death Watch actually would want him to do as an initiation, he's not willing to do it. He stays good. It's nice to see that he does stay loyal. He doesn't do as kind of a uh, a force thing where he's like, yeah, I'm going to jump onto the other side, as you might see in, you know, old cartoons or something. But it was a, it was an interesting moment. I got to wonder if part of it is sort of a nod of, yeah, we know they look cool, but um, they're the bad guys, people. Could be. And I want to get to that. But before that, as Glitch is coming in, I thought it was kind of cool to see the tents. I mean, that was something that you don't really get that much of. Uh, you know, the old Gendy series gave us Anakin and Obi-Wan, you know, hiding un underneath like a, a, a edge of a shopkeep, that kind of stuff. You really got a sense back then that, that clones and stuff, they just slept wherever or inside their vehicles or something like that. But this actually had tents that they were able to put up that were portable. I thought that was kind of cool. But yeah, when, when Pre Vizsla comes in, almost all of his lines I hear as the voice actor. I mean, it's totally when he's like, those markings, you fancy yourself a member of the Death Watch tool of Jedi? Well, I, uh, you want to join us? You're in. All you have to do is shoot that Jedi. I, I can't. I won't. I thought as much. Just another pale imitation. And everything about it, I hear it completely in that voice, which I think that was one of the coolest things about it. I mean, you know, you recognize where the character's at, not just because they tell you at the beginning, but because he's got the, the uh, two little antennas on each side of the helmet and he's already shaved his head. So it's like there's these, these precursors of where you're at in the timeline just based off of his presence and the way he's drawn alone and then we go into a really cool lightsaber fight which you know you can't go wrong with lightsaber fights especially when pre is involved with the darksaber that's right glitch draws renax's lightsaber uh the green one and distracts Vizsla, essentially uh, it's interesting i i think that this is where it really kind of hit me that acklin really got the voice not the sound of the voice but the cadence and the way of speaking for Pre Vizsla nailed for this, very much like uh, the writer of Honor Among Thieves did a great job capturing Han. Because mm -hmm. when the lightsaber's pulled out, Bo-Katan says, drop it or she dies. And you have this moment of Vizsla laughing, ah ha 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 Wait, Bo-Katan, this amuses me. If this gene scraping wants to test his mettle against a true Mandalorian, so be it. It's really capturing, I think, the way that we could have heard him saying lines like that mm -hmm. in the cartoon series. So, Vizsla draws his Darksaber, which, you know, is always awesome to see. We never really get a whole lot of background to it, but we got a little bit thanks to uh, the Mandalorian or Death Watch chunk of Bounty Hunter Code a while back, which was cool. So, they duel. Pre Vizsla duels Glitch briefly, but Glitch isn't actually trying to win the fight. He knows he can't win the duel. He simply draws Vizsla over to the floor plate that activates the Lucian Dre Guardian droid, which then attacks the Death Watch members when he activates it. When Vizsla then presses the attack on Glitch, he uses the lightsaber in the wrong hole in this booby-trapped thing, the thing we saw earlier, one of those tests to get into. Stick the lightsaber in the right hole, it opens up. Sticks it in the wrong one, then the one that opens the secret passage to activate that booby trap, and the temple begins to collapse around them. Seeing this happen, Death Watch retreats, and the Republic team manages to escape except for Glitch, who's assumed to have been lost in the collapse along with the gauntlet. And we have that moment that you mentioned where 
you know, after all this stuff that Glitch has done, Glitch basically is the hero of this story. We have Horns take off his helmet. He tosses it. He's recognized that, you know, screw the Death Watch. I'm done with it. He tosses it down there. But then one of the other clones says, after Utrilla says, thank you, Trooper Glitch, thinking that he's dead. So long, Glitch. You were a terrible clone trooper, but you were a great man. And I don't know how I feel about that, because he wasn't the best of troopers per se. Um, <laughs> they made fun of him all the time. He's kind of like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, only it turns out that like Rudolph with the nose so bright that guides them where they need to go, his possible attunement to the Force led them in the right direction a couple times. He was able to stand up and do things that normal clones necessarily wouldn't, grabbing the lightsaber, dueling against Vizsla, more like a Jedi would than like a clone would. And he did turn out to be a good man. He was the one who saved the day. But I'm not sure if the way they treated him looking at it really makes that whole you were a crappy little trooper type of content yeah. justified. It's kind of... I don't know. It, it's like they're saying you're a good man and yet disparaging them. It's like someone who's, you know, uh, who's trying to hide the races. You think about, um, was it Joe Biden back in the 2008 campaign or a little bit before that talking about Barack Obama as a senator and referred to him as, well, he's nice, he's clean, he's articulate. And you're like, compared to what? He's, yes, he's, he was clean cut. He was an articulate speaker. But why do you feel the need to point that out? Are you essentially saying something that's yeah, that should have been prefaced with, well, I don't want to sound racist, but because it basically wound up being racist, whether you meant it that way or not. It's like these guys, they can't let go of bashing on the guy that just saved all their asses. Pretty much. Yeah, I, that, that was one that struck me. And during the lightsaber battle, I think this is where Glitch really steps forward. I mean, they, they mentioned, you know, his ability that, that you could almost call a force ability is he's got a natural ability to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, and they joke about that a couple times. But when Pre Vizsla's coming at him, he's like, what's your story then, clone? Do you think you're a Mandalorian because you found out you're a poor copy of one like your friend? No, he says. And that's when he steps down on it. That's the reference that I'm talking about. You think you're a Mandalorian because you found out you're a poor copy of one. Aha. Gotcha. I it I remember running into it when I was rereading it, but I didn't spot it as I was skimming things over during the summary there. So yeah, so we do have Death Watch acknowledging it. So it turns out the true Mandalorians are the only ones not really acknowledging Jango Fett, it seems, as a Mandalorian, which would be in perfect keeping with this idea that, well, he's not a pacifist. We're the real ones here on the planet. These guys that still stick to the warrior ways, they're just thugs and bounty hunters, et cetera, et cetera. That makes well, and it's, perfect it's, sense. It's nice, too, because it seems like Pre Vizsla is trying to even claim that title, because he calls himself the true Mandalorian. You're, you know, you're going to test yourself against a true Mandalorian. It, it's almost like, you know, you call yourself what you want, Cal Skirata. I'm just going to take it. I'm going to confuse the heck out of everybody. And, you know, it's almost like, like watching Sons of Anarchy, and you have, like, one group, you know, trashing the name of the rest of the group. It's one thing that I don't like about the way comics are lettered. They're generally lettered in such a way that all the letters are capitalized. So we don't know if this is a true Mandalorian, capital T, <laughs> meaning the group that broke away and all that stuff and stuff with the warrior ways that then the Death Watch split out of, according to the Legends continuity at least, or if it's just true with the lowercase t and he's saying, you're fighting the real deal, which, you know, in both cases, what he's saying would make sense. Because again, the Death Watch yeah. spun out of the true Mandalorians. 
during that lightsaber fight, it continues. You know, he's like, now I see. You don't imagine yourself a warrior at all. Your little tricks, your lightsaber, you actually think you're a Jedi. Tell me, clone, do you feel like a Jedi now? And he's pushing up against him with the lightsaber blade. And this is when Glitch flicks off. He's like, no, if I were a Jedi, I'd know the correct hole to choose. And he's reaching in and he splunts it in. He's like, I just have a talent for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that's when Previsal is like, get out of here, guys. And he's like, I, you know, Death Watch, fall back. Wait, are you going with this where I think you're going with this, given all the references to things like Vindication? I think so, maybe. Isn't this, in a sense, a Zane Carrick kind of thing? Wrong place, wrong time, but the Force puts him where he needs to be. The Force, you know, doesn't want me dead. It doesn't like me, but it doesn't want me dead. There, there is the, that's the big question I have at the end. Yeah, we're, we're, we're treading towards it, man. Yes, there is that question because as we're about to see, you know, someone's about to survive and, you know, that, that dark side power, you know, there's already a question of, is he feeling the force even minutely? And what would happen to him then if he comes in contact with all that dark side? And I think of, and I hate to even bring her up, but Callista or Carista, whichever Luke's one girlfriend that couldn't touch the force. And she ended up the only way she could touch it was through the dark side. And she was like, I got to back away. This is too tempting. You know, you've got a clone here that has no idea about the temptations of that power. If it actually does something to him, like it does the, the sorrows. This is true. Um, so we're going to get to that in just a second. There is a scene in between before we find out that glitch actually survived. And that is that, at this spaceport, basically, or, or perhaps on a ship, Renax basically tenders her resignation from the Jedi Order. And we got a hint of that earlier where, you know, she said, you know, she hadn't planned on fighting a war. Nobody asked her. We didn't, I don't think we ever got a sense of that throughout the rest of the story, that this is something that she, was weighing on her to the point where she would leave. But she does. That's kind of the, the nature of one of these stories that has to be told very quickly because it's just in the digest format. At least it's one story, not three crammed into one of these. So she tenders her resignation says goodbye to her former master, says that she is going to go out and seek her family. Hopefully they'll remember her and sort of get on with life and find another path. She just knows that her path is not that of a Jedi. So I find that interesting here because it's not something that we see very often. Um, there's the whole Lost 20 thing, obviously, that in Lucas's mind there were only 20 that ever left the Order or left under certain circumstances. But then, of course, within the Clone Wars, especially within the Legends continuity, the stuff from Dark Horse and whatnot, we got a lot of Jedi who are siding with Dooku and that sort of thing, and there's a question of, well, you know, how does one leave the Order? Now we get a moment where Renax is sort of pulling in Ahsoka. She's thought things through. She's gone through something different, but she's thought things through and decides that this is not the right path for her. She has to find herself in a sense. I find this particularly of interest because this would have been being created around the same time they were working on Season 5 of The Clone Wars. And this issue, this digest, came out less than two weeks after the airing of the episode in which Ahsoka basically does the same thing. So for those who are following The Clone Wars heavily at the time, we have just, you know, less than half a month, really, in which we see two Padawans, for various reasons, leave the Jedi Order to sort of find themselves. And I would imagine, for especially for those who just never really checked out the Dark Horse stuff when it came to the, you know, Sora Bulk and others like that, that would have had a pretty heavy impact on how they viewed the idea of being a Padawan and the idea that a Jedi could just voluntarily leave, which we don't see much, again, outside of the Lost 20 or Legends-only stuff. Clone Wars cartoon series didn't really deal with it much. 
Well, and what's interesting here is with both those examples that you point out, they're Padawans. Because I was that was what jumped out to me. It's like, wait, why is she letting her just walk? You know, when Kukruk tried to do this, when Sora Bulk and that group tried to do it, Mace Windu went back and said, we need you. You can't go. You're too valuable. Would not let them go. And it, it forced uh, Sora into Dooku's camp. Kukruk, it brought him back into the fold. But then you also have Baradan Jusk who also left to go with the Mandalorians. The one thing that was always interesting about the Lost 20, though, was that they were revered, honored members of the Order. They left for honorable reasons, for higher ideals. And that was always something that was... Because Dooku was without question, it couldn't have been Dooku, because he was part of the Lost 20. They left for ideals that were above what the Jedi had. So, you know, they were examples of, of even better. So it was always that interesting twist that made me stop and think, is it because she's a Padawan that they were okay with her walking away? Because from a legend side, we've seen examples where other Jedi were, were brought back. They were, you know, aggressively pursued. <laughs> so I was like, that to me jumped right out because I did know about other Jedi that had similar situations. But the only thing that jumps out to me is that these ones, uh, Ahsoka and, and uh, this young lady here, Renex, they're Padawans. That's the main difference that I'm seeing between them and the other Dark Horse comics, Clone Wars comic uh, versions that were brought back by Mace. But you know, that whole Dooku example is interesting because that's a Lucas example. But it turns out that it may not be quite what it appeared to be. You know, he's a political idealist, not a murderer, right? And he leaves a Jedi Order. We were told at one point by Lucas it was supposed to be because of Qui-Gon's death. That was sort of the last straw. But now we find, thanks to the Lost One and comments by Filoni, it certainly looks as though he must have already been a Sith, or at least working with Darth Sidious, prior to leaving the Jedi Order. So he may have left under the pretense of high ideals, but apparently not really, because he would have already had been either a Sith or groomed as a Sith or whatever prior to that, despite what... The Darth Plagueis novel tries to show that supposedly had Lucas input, but then Lucas, of course, went and changed stuff around like he, you know, usually does. Yeah, it was canon for a whole minute. So, Glitch was left buried under the rubble, and it turns out, back on Dre 2, that he emerges from that rubble wearing the gauntlet. It actually worked. It has saved him by making him invulnerable, just like the Sarls, only in this case because he's wearing it, not because of a long-time exposure. He tosses that dark side artifact into the river to be washed away by its currents, the river that he's uh, kind of come out of the rubble by, and he looks and sees basically a, a pristine landscape aside from the debris heading away from him. So this canyon, a lot of animals, uh, plant life, clean water, and he's realizing that the force truly does flow through everything, even he himself. So he's stranded on the planet. Seems like he's okay with that at this point and whereas Utrilla comments basically that they're not going to send anybody to try to guard the canyon that the gauntlet will never trouble them again it's not actually buried under the rubble anymore it's been tossed into that river still probably an easier way to hide it than putting it on a freaking pedestal inside a temple but it is apparently still out there probably still on Dre too at this point yeah, that one, okay, immediately the first thing I thought of was Kip Duran. Okay, if Kip's able to pull the Sun Crusher out of the inside of a star, okay, if he's able to do this with the Force, this thing, unlike the Sun Crusher, 
it's lit up like a 4th of July firework for a force user. Dark side, dark side, dark side. I mean, all Glitch has done is slid it over a rock to help weigh it down. I mean, I, I don't even think it's going to wash down the river. It's going to be right there in that valley. Oh, man. So, I mean, in- even worse, what if some giant sea creature eats it and it gets <laughs> lodged like in its mouth or something? And over time, that exposure turns the sea creature into an invulnerable behemoth. Uh, think of the sea creatures from episode one. The biggest one you can think of, now turn it invincible. You just wrecked an ecosystem, my friend. Or if a space slug comes and eats this planet. I mean, just think about that. Maybe that's the space slug that Han and them flew out of. (laughs) But I like when he comes out, though, he's like, he's got the helmet off and he's like, oh, I see. The force flows. It flows through everything. And that's where I get that question of, did he become awake in the force? Did having that on do something more to that little sliver of an opening, which, which brings me back to that moment with Kit Fisto where he was explaining, you know, you do these exercises and it will help you with your awareness. Did his awareness get enhanced the same way the sorrows were enhanced or is it only a specific to their, you know, the invulnerability aspect? Would it have nothing to do with the force? Because it seems by his comment that he comes out that he sees now that he's had a great epiphany. Or, or an awakening of the Force. Or he just bumped his head and he's like, yeah, man, cool. Yeah, I, I don't know, but I like the idea, whether it enhances it or not, um, that he is someone who is possibly touched by the Force. He might be able to use the Force on some uh, rudimentary level because it changes our view, perhaps, of the or not changes, but leans toward that view of spirituality versus the biological, as I was mentioning earlier. But also, you know, it does the fact that it's ambiguous, and that when we saw him using the force, it wasn't like he was a Jedi or using it consciously. It was stuff like being in the wrong place at the wrong time, walking in the right direction because it seemed like the right thing. It kind of makes me wonder if this is a way that we can sort of write off the idea of the gauntlet's effects. Because someone who was heavy into the force, the master touched it and Whereas he can touch it, not a biggie, right? It's not corrupting him, it would seem. So perhaps that's just a matter of, you know, the more force-attuned you are, the more the dark side will tend to affect you, which you would assume. Uh, And that's a way of just saying, okay, that makes sense of why he could just toss it, not be corrupted by it, and maybe he's a little touched. Maybe it's just someone who... (laughs) A little touched, like nuts. Uh, Maybe he's a little touched by the force, and it's just his whole experience is sort of giving him a spiritual way of looking at things that maybe he, it's not like it awakened the force in him or anything like that. And he's going to somehow turn into some kind of crazy, cool refugee clone Jedi or something on the planet, but it's given him a different outlook, surviving death that way. That should have been certain doom and fighting with the lightsaber and all that. And being the hero, it's given him a different outlook. Either way, you come out with the sense that Glitch, to a degree, has changed. He's had his own story arc, his own character arc, just in this one little story, as has Renax, and I think I'm okay with that, because usually these stories don't feel like they end with much, if any, character development for anybody whatsoever. And this time it did. Again, making this one of the better of the Clone Wars Digests. Yeah, I actually, I really enjoyed it. I like the fact that it tied into the other eras and, and those eras in a sense 
added the history to the location. You know, as I said at the beginning, you could have went with any location. It could have been any Sith random artifact. But by doing what they did, it allows for, you know, new stories that could be told as to how it got there, uh, you know, why it was there, what went on with Dre, what happened with Dre's group, those things. You know, I mean, immediately questions start coming out and I want to start delving back into these old works. That is one of the beauties about Legends. Uh, you know, I mean, even though it's sitting on our bookshelves collecting dust, there are so many words written down in these books that I can guarantee you, even if you own them all, you're not memorizing it. And if you are, man, you really should start a website because you're gifted. Because there are so many things that I forget about. I mean, I, it could have been Cloak of Deception, not even The Approaching Storm. I don't even remember which book it was with the Kit Fisto reference. But there are all these aspects of things that tie in together that you forget about. And then when you read one of these books, you're like, oh, yeah. That happened in that one thing. And then you go and you look for it. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, you're like 40 comics deep into a series that you haven't read for a year and a half. And that for me is one of the things that I always enjoy about coming back to these works that I haven't seen in a while. I mean, there's a moment of, oh, well, are we going to really go back to that really old work? But then when I go back and I do it, it's so much fun that I I'm glad that this one turned out to be fun because I there was a little bit of trepidation because we have waited. I mean, I've waited so long to get any of these these digest comics. I mean, I always thought they were like the bottom of the barrel, but it's nice and refreshing to know that even amongst all those, there are some shining examples of what are there. They might not be diamonds, but there's some really nice emeralds. Oh, see, I was thinking that there was a, a, a Rebels reference coming because, you know, Ezra is basically space Aladdin. It could be this issue is a, a diamond in their off or something. You know, it's it's a series that you don't expect anything necessarily great to come out of, but turns out this one, polish it a little, it's actually pretty good. Um, he's got to take the time to actually check it out. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU slash Legends questions or you just want to comment about a past episode fire off you can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com and speaking of past episodes you can find them all at www.starwarsreport.com slash beyond the films now lastly before we go we wanted to mention to you our audible trial if you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about and i gotta tell you beyonders i finally took that plunge and hearing mark thompson 
Tell us some some great stories. It's a lot of fun. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles, and that is 178 Star Wars books right now. And you can explore those Star Wars books or any other genre without being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months with no questions asked. So, in this digital age, if you're like me and thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark Whistler. Kidding me, you little Did you just call Whistler <laughs> I did. Okay. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that Mark will eventually pre-record a lot of that last couple minutes of stuff so he doesn't have to actually read it every single time. Because you know he does, folks. He actually reads it every single time. If you're paying attention, you'll notice there are little differences. You know, it's funny, actually, on a side note of that. Uh, when I work, I got a different manager that was giving me a hard time. She's like, you need to say this every time. And I'm like, you know, I record a show where I write down what I say, and every time I can't even write... I can't read what I write. I say, st- I ad-lib everything. I can't do it. <laughs> we like to try our sponsors. Oh, uh, mother. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. You want to add like a little or blah, blah, blah. And then we'll wrap. Or what? Because I did the, uh, that you would, you know, pre-record or whatever. But you usually add an or that oh. something, something. Or I'd actually have an on, because I usually don't. Alright, cool. <laughs> Alright, so I know, it's get... funny, it's like, I, I come up with the, uh, uh, you know, and with me like, and then I get to the odds, and I'm like, I, ne- I never think of one! And then I'm like, okay, what did we think about through the show? Today on the show, what did we learn today? <laughs> yeah, the old uh, Jerry Springer type stuff. <laughs> yeah. Final thoughts. <laughs> Be kind to yourself and each other. Unless she's a h- then beat her ass, apparently, according to Jerry. <laughs> Alright, so I'm waiting to see some Democrats go, You can't talk that way about Joe Biden. Hey, mother, he's the one who said it. He's the one that made the quasi-racist comment there. Crazy. Man, I've been looking through these books trying to find that Kit Fisto thing, and now I'm like, what f***ing book was that in? Oh, I have no idea. I... I pretty much blocked the approaching storm out of my mind because it's sucked. It's it was the Cletus trap or Celtus trap or whatever it was. Oh, Cestus deception. Yes, it was that one. Hmm. Stuff. So. Yes. Oh, so he's adding to it every time a new quote comes out. Uh, he was. Oh wow. And you. I wasn't aware of that. I I went through however long it was and I was reading. I was just like, oh my god, like. No wonder we as a fandom are so fucking divided about what they said. <laughs> like I, I that that's what made me start, and I hate even saying it like that because Leland is all I've always felt like he was like our boy for the EU, but it's like holy crap, man, Leland, I was believing you. Why was I believing you all the time? I'm so betrayed. <laughs> spot, spot. It's supposed to be blinking with my cursor, but I don't see. There we go. And when they saw the new, they're not the new republic yet. They're the republic, the old republic. They don't say old because according to Previsla, the old republic was something earlier because that's where they got the frickin' dark saber from. Hell if we know what it is. <clears throat> so that's a blooper. No, it's not at that moment. I would say it's at that moment where Visla mentions uh, Django being a Mandalorian, but he. 
doesn't. Get Whistler. Whistler, and get back here! 